Hola, mi gente. It's Joshua. As founder and host of the Basel podcast, I want to thank you for listening to this show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. Let's be honest. Traditional media is not lifting up Puerto Rican stories that reflect the nuance and beauty that exist in our community. And we hope this show plays a little part in changing that. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating or whatever the highest rating in your app is and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can always give a donation by looking up the Paseo podcast on SaveChicagoMedia.org. All right, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Bienvenidos to the Paseo Podcast. I am your host, Joshua Smizer de Leon. If you're not already, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Paseo Podcast. And of course, subscribe to our Paseo Podcast YouTube channel for the video versions of our interviews. In today's episode, I'm sharing another Puerto Rican history lesson. Longtime listeners know these are some of my favorite episodes to do because I didn't get to do much um, learning of Puerto Rican history in school. Unfortunately, it was a couple pages in the textbook. So any opportunity I get to take a deep dive into our history gives me a chance to learn alongside you, our listeners. And sometimes it allows me to just share random facts that somehow are imprinted in my brain with people. Um, and if I can introduce you to something you didn't know before, that's a W uh, in my mind. Um, don't get me wrong, love interviewing our, our guests. Uh, but this time around, we're going to take a deep dive into uh, Chicago Puerto Rican history. Uh, this time we're focusing on the Division Street riots in Chicago that took place from June 12th to June 14th in 1966. To put this episode together, I sourced material from local Chicago news stations, WTTW and CAN-TV, as well as the document Recollections, the 1966 Division Street riots published by the Center for Latino Research at my alma mater, DePaul University. Now, before we jump in, I want to also note that this episode is just a snapshot of this historical moment in time and should really act as a, as a gateway uh, to you going out there and learning more about it. So, by the way, I mentioned those sources. I will make sure they are in the show notes. So if you want to learn more after this episode, you'll have at least a couple places to start or three places to start to be exact. If there is something you feel I should have covered, let me know by reaching out to the show on social media or at our email, podcast at gmail.com. So... What were the Division Street Riots? If you're hearing about them for the first time, don't worry, you're not alone. The riots tend to get lost in history due to a number of other riots, assassinations, and protests happening in the late 60s, both at the local level and at the national level. So they don't quite get the shine uh, that, they, that they deserve. Uh, so again, they kind of tend to get lost in the shuffle. But uh, in short, the Division Street Riots were the first riot in the United States attributed to Puerto Ricans. The riots were a representation of the frustration in the Puerto Rican community in Chicago at the time. Um, and it was really like a, a turning point in Puerto Rican civic involvement in Chicago. And uh, you might be wondering what really started these riots? What was that flashpoint moment? And there definitely was that flashpoint that kicked it off. Uh, but let's get an understanding of what the Chicago Puerto Rican community had experienced leading up to 
this flashpoint leading up to the riots. I'm going to play a clip here from a former DePaul University professor of mine, Jacqueline Lazou, to give this context. The clip is from the 50th anniversary of the Division Street Riots event she spoke at in 2016. It's a bit long at over a, about a minute, but it's definitely worth a listen to give you that context. Here's Professor Lazou. I want to talk about uh, how the very first wave of Puerto Ricans began to arrive in the city of Chicago in the 1940s, primarily as contract laborers in industry and agriculture. The Department of Labor Migration Division, as the principal government agency responsible for managing Puerto Rican labor migration throughout the Midwest, tried to encourage migrants to live among whites in order to integrate them into American society, and many Puerto Ricans attempted to do so. At first, Puerto Ricans did in fact leave, live throughout uh, several neighborhoods, including the Loop, Back of the Yards, and Chicago's Black Belt. By the 1960s, however, long-held racial fears by the city's white populations had siphoned Puerto Ricans into co in concentrated numbers into Lincoln Park, West Town, uh, and Humble Park, where they faced economic and political marginalization, police abuse, housing discrimination, and abuse by landlords and neighbors. In Lincoln Park, Puerto Ricans established a small enclave along Armitage Avenue that included small businesses, religious, social, and cultural networks. But by the 1960s, Puerto Rican and other low-income residents of Lincoln Park, including Mexicans, Polish, and African-Americans, faced displacement from urban renewal. Progressively, Puerto Ricans relocated to West Town and Humboldt Park, where they created the Puerto Rican Barrio along La Division. As we just heard from Professor Lazu, Puerto Ricans were trying to find a place to call home in Chicago, a place where they can get a slice of the American dream that they were promised when they migrated to the US. But they kept hitting roadblocks in the forms of things like gentrification, housing discrimination, and urban renewal, which further pushed Puerto Ricans into a state of feeling unwelcomed and unfairly treated by the city. By June 1966, Chicago's Boricuas could not be ignored, and Chicago's inaugural Puerto Rican Day Parade took place in the Loop that month. For people listening that aren't from Chicago, aren't familiar with Chicago, the Loop is what we call downtown Chicago. From accounts on that day, the parade vibe was very joyful, but then what followed was a three-day riot along Division Street in Humble Park. PBS actually wrote about the riots, and in their report, they described what happened like this. The same weekend as the parade, a young Puerto Rican man named Cruz Arcelis was shot by Chicago police patrolman Thomas Munyon on Damon Avenue just north of Division Street. Reports in the Chicago Tribune differed as to whether Munyon and his partner stopped to break up a fight between Arcelis and another man or if Arcelis and the other man had yelled insults at the police, but it does appear that Arcelis did have a gun and was shot while the other man fled. Munyon's partner, uh, it's important to note, was actually transferred and then resigned in the wake of the shooting. He had been involved in, quote-unquote, uh, in a controversial case involving two Latin Americans, end quote, the previous year in which a judge ruled excessive force had been used. Rioting broke out in response to the shooting and flared up again the following two nights. One riot witness was quoted as saying, In retrospect, I believe that the main cause of the riot was the invisibility of the Puerto Rican community within the city of Chicago. Other witnesses were quoted as pointing to instances of police brutality and discrimination, with one person stating, Our community had too many problems at the time. However, the catalyst of the riot was the way the cops behaved during the parade downtown. 
and during the Puerto Rican parade celebration, they chased two people up an alley and shot at them. That is what started the riot on Damon and Division, where police cars were turned over and burned, the police used excessive force and people pushed back. Even worse, in the days that followed, it was not just excessive force, but treating people like dirt, like they were not human beings, with total disrespect. The police didn't know anything about the Puerto Rican community." End quote. By looking and reading witness accounts, it's clear the shooting of Arcelis was definitely a flashpoint for much of the second-class citizenship Puerto Ricans were facing and frustrated with at the time. Most doors along division between California and Damon were damaged and many were looted. Police dogs were used against the crowd, which was a tactic that was uh, later condemned. Thanks to community leaders, police were convinced to stay out of the area to avoid further escalation while they tried to restore the peace. They also met with then-Mayor Richard J. Daley and police leadership to help ease tensions between police and residents. Ultimately, the 1966 Division Street riots was a symbol of community resistance against oppression, discrimination, and treatment of second-class citizenship. The greatest outcomes that resulted from this historical moment in Puerto Rican history is the emergence and rebirth of an aggressive community activism that demanded things like economic development, political participation, access to social services and education, and many other social changes. And this led to really important things like the formation of numerous Puerto Rican community organizations, including the Puerto Rican Cultural Center on Paseo Boricua, the Spanish Action Committee of Chicago, the Latin American Defense Organization, the Bickerdike Redevelopment Corporation, the Aspira Association, the Young Lords, and even Dr. Pedro Abizu Campos Puerto Rican High School, to name a few. It also led to public hearings for residents to share their grievances on issues such as housing discrimination, uh, lack of educational opportunities, and the inequitable hiring in the police and fire departments. And another thing this led to was that the city established an actual uh, office on Division Street to help uh, build a bridge between the city and the Puerto Rican community. Of course, not every issue was fixed or addressed after the 1966 riots and they were not the last riots Chicago would experience, and certainly not the last riot by the Puerto Rican community, which, you know, that's another episode for another day, but those are known as the Humble Park Riots of 1977, so about 10 years after this first riot took place. But between policy recommendations emerging from the hearings and the work of the new community organizations, issues began to be addressed, and Puerto Ricans also began to gain political power. One riot witness captured this emergence of Puerto Rican activism in Chicago the best when they stated, quote, At this point, we became a community, not just a collection of individuals, end quote. And that's one of my big takeaways from this historical moment, mi gente. The power of the collective was greater than the individual. When the Puerto Rican community was siloed and unorganized, they were taken advantage of. They didn't have a seat at the table of power because they were on the menu. So when we as Puerto Ricans get together, when we organize, when we speak in a unified voice, we have evidence to show in the aftermath of the 1966 Division Street riots that we can, in fact, bring about the change we want to see in our community. And if we can continue to organize and stay unified, there's no telling how much progress we can bring about for our people. And that's our short Puerto Rican history lesson for the day, y'all. Special thanks again to all the awesome resources uh, that I was able to tap into for this episode. Again, we're scratching the surface of this. There's a lot more to, to uncover, to learn about the 1966 Division Street riots. I hope, again, that this was a, a gateway for you to learn more. I hope you feel inspired to learn more. 
Um, we'll do another episode on the 1977 riots. I'm not sure when that'll happen, but it's definitely on my radar. All right, we're going to take a quick pause for the cause before we wrap up with some of the Puerto Rican headlines on my mind and some shout outs. So hang tight. Hey there. We want to take a moment to thank our partners, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of Chicago and the Chicago Independent Media Alliance for their support. This show would not be possible without them. And shout out to our amazing podcast team. Learn more about them and the show by visiting our website, paseomedia.org. Enjoy the rest of the show. Now it's time for the part of the show where we share some of the latest Puerto Rican news headlines. But first, I want to share a few listener shout outs and announcements. I shared this announcement on our social media, but in case you missed it, the Paseo podcast will be part of the Puerto Rican People's Day Parade taking place this Saturday, June 11th at 2 p.m. We'll be in a pickup truck, so if you see us, wave, say hi, and tell us how much you love listening to the podcast. I've attended the PR Parade and PR Fest for as long as I can remember, so to now be in it is a big deal for me. It's a big deal for the podcast. Members of our team and my family will be there too, so this moment will be super meaningful. If you're in Chicago, I hope to see you there. Another shout out was uh, to uh, City Cash Chicago. I was actually invited to stop by the City Cash Chicago podcast to talk about Chicago's Puerto Rican community, the history of Paseo Boricua, and my upbringing in Humble Park. It was a really fun conversation. I've added the link to the episode in our show notes. You can also find the episode by looking up City Cash Chicago wherever you stream your podcasts. The episode just went up this week, so give it a listen when you have the chance. And of course, let me know what you think. Last shout out I want to give is to listener at Mata underscore PR on Twitter. They put together a blog post on the Puerto Rican podcast you should hear. And I was super happy and humbled to see that the Paseo podcast made it on that list. You can find their blog on blog X Mata, and that's Mata with three A's, M-A-R-A-A uh, dot com. And you can see the full list of Puerto Rican podcasts she recommends. So shout out to you uh, at Mata underscore PR. Appreciate uh, the kind words. And of course, appreciate being included on your list. And thanks to everyone who continues to shout us out on social media and in our, e in our email inbox. Uh, and, uh, you know, showing support through high ratings, reviews, tags, tweets, blog posts, and everything else under the sun. We really appreciate y'all. All right. Now let's get into the news. This isn't every headline. So if we miss something, let us know. Basel podcast at gmail.com or at Basel podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Number one, the New York born Puerto Rican singer songwriter Princess Nokia recently shared her new music video of 2022. Nokia dropped a new video for her track Diva. The cool thing about her and this video is that Princess Nokia filmed it as her quote unquote uh, love letter to Puerto Rico. The rapper recorded the video in Puerto Rico, and in the song, she plays homage to the women who inspire her. Nokia is seen in Puerto Rico dancing, standing in nature, and riding in a vintage car, of course. Uh, for me personally, I always love seeing music videos shot in Puerto Rico by Puerto Rican artists. After this episode, give the video a watch. Let us know what you think. Number two. The AP reported that Puerto Rico unveiled its first power grid reconstruction projects. Officials announced Monday that the reconstruction of Puerto Rico's power grid is finally advancing nearly five years after Hurricane Maria struck the U.S. territory and devastated it. The AP reported that more than $100 million in federal funds were secured for the first 15 of more than 200 reconstruction projects proposed after the hurricane raised the aging power grid back in September 2017. Officials said another 21 of the more than 200 reconstruction projects will likely be approved soon by FEMA. 
A handful of projects were recently completed, including repairs to generation plants and street lights. Overall, 216 reconstruction projects are expected to be completed in the next eight years. Until now, only emergency projects have been completed. This, of course, is with the backdrop of consistent power outages. Puerto Rico's electrical power company also remaining mired in bankruptcy. Luma Energy repeatedly raising utility rates on residents for, for worse service. Random fires at energy plants and a warning from the governor of Puerto Rico that the PR power grid may not survive another devastating hurricane. With all that in mind, I personally think the government's timeline is way too long for these re reconstruction projects. It's not happening fast enough. And I think the financial resources are far too low. But that's another episode for another day. Number three, it's Pride Month. Uh, shout out to all my LGBTQIA plus family out there in the world today and every day. To celebrate Pride Month, the Los Angeles Blade reported that Puerto Rico celebrated three decades of pride earlier this week in San Juan. This is a reflection of all the Boricuas who have marched to celebrate the years of hard work by advocates and organizations that today have enabled the LGBTQIA community of Puerto Rico to have safer and more inclusive spaces on La Isla. The first Puerto Rican Pride celebration actually took place in San Juan in 1990 as a celebration to honor those who had died during the AIDS epidemic and to express outrage against police persecution and regulations meant to silence the LGBTQIA community back then. Puerto Rico's LGBTQIA community has turned into a pillar of the island's fight for equality, social justice, and human rights. Their work and advocacy is important now more than ever as Puerto Rico has the highest hate crime rates in the U.S., Six of the 44 transgender and gender nonconforming people who were reported killed in the country in 2020 were in Puerto Rico. These deaths represent most of the murders of trans people in the U.S. that year. Therefore, every year thousands of Puerto Ricans continue to march for better health services on La Isla, the prohibition of conversion therapy, and the fight to stop hate crimes against their people, especially trans people. Number four. ABC News reported that Puerto Rico's water and sewer company has been hit by a federal lawsuit demanding that it provide services to thousands of residents who lack access to drinkable water on a daily basis. The class action lawsuit was filed by Carmen Maldonado, mayor of the northern town of Morovis, who requested that a judge issue an injunction to force Puerto Rico's aqueducts and sewer authority to provide immediate service to residents in need. The lawsuit represents nearly 1,600 residents and seeks $1,000 for every day spent without water as compensation, alleging that the lack of water has caused more than $55 billion in damages. Maldonado said daily interruptions in water service have long been a problem in Morovis that grew worse after Hurricane Maria hit in 2017. The lawsuit also states that every day on average at least three wards within the municipality have no water service. It also noted that the town has spent more than $1 million in hiring and deploying water trucks since January 2017. This seems like a strong case in favor of Morovis, and I really hope they win this. There's no excuse to deprive people of clean drinking water. That should be a right. One of the worst parts of this that was stated in the lawsuit is that the water company hasn't even adjusted residents' bills to give them some relief as they receive subpar services. We'll keep you posted as more details are reported on this story, um, really on a lot of these stories that we share. Um, but uh, this one really caught my eye. Uh, it was just so egregious. Number five, Latino rebels reported that last Saturday, four members of the House held a public forum to discuss their plan for deciding the future of the political status of Puerto Rico. And when I say House, I mean the U.S. House. The representatives sought feedback on the recently proposed draft of the Puerto Rico Status Act. Uh, which, of course, uh, we share details on 
in our last episode. The draft, which has yet to be introduced in committee, outlines the process for what would be the first ever binding plebiscite that would offer Puerto Ricans an avenue for putting an end to their over a century old colonial status. Voters would have to decide between three options, statehood, independence, or sovereignty and free association with the United States. La Isla's current Commonwealth status is not an option in the proposed draft. Now, for about four hours, groups of speakers ranging from former politicians to leaders of uh, political organizations sat across from the panel of federal legislators and spent five minutes sharing their opinions of the draft. There was no overarching agreement over the future of the political status of Puerto Rico. Uh, surprise, surprise. Although, uh, predominantly, what was shared was a sentiment from speakers that the discussion draft was a good start to relinquishing themselves of colonialism. Among the major issues that the speakers had with the draft, though, uh, and the two most commonly raised ones, were the questions of citizenship and the distinction between free association and independence. Another concern was the possibility of losing Spanish as the primary language used in the government, schools, and businesses, especially if Puerto Rico gains statehood. There were protests that took place and legitimate gripes against the U.S. Congress. Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was there for the forum and called many of the criticisms legitimate. She did stand her ground in trusting the political process for Puerto Rico's self-determination. And she even stated, uh, we are in the messy process of trying to exercise some form of self-governance. It is imperfect. We'll get to the dead ends. There'll be disagreements, end quote. Um, she also said, uh, quote, I think that we need to figure out for ourselves at least is what does a legitimate process for us look like? As an aside, there's also frustration that the new PR status bill is not in Spanish. Latino rebels reported that that discussion is happening in the House of Representatives over whether or not the new uh, Puerto Rico status uh, draft uh, will be translated into Spanish. But so far, there have been no confirmations that they are going to do so. AOC has gone on the record as stating that she will not support this legislation if it has not been translated into Spanish and shared with the Puerto Rican electorate first. That's all I have for now. In our next episode, we're either going to share our on-site interview with Scott Vargas, the executive director of the Puerto Rican Ice Hockey Association, or an interview with members of the Puerto Rican Agenda and focus on all things Chicago Boricua News. So stay tuned for those. While you wait, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever the top rating is on the app you're using to listen to this on. It really helps other people find the show. Leaving a positive comment helps too. See you in two weeks. Cuídate. ¿Qué tal, mi gente latina? Hoy les tengo buena noticia. El día 10 y 11 de junio del 2022 llega a Chicago la Convención de Cannabis de Nican de Illinois. No se lo pierda. La ciudad de Chicago agrega 44 dispensarios de cannabis impresionante. Nican se esfuerza de traerle los mejores dispensarios de cannabis en la industria junto en un solo lugar. No importa su nivel de experiencia en este tema. Todos están invitados al evento a explorar la sala de exposiciones y escuchar docenas de expertos de cannabis. Ya llega pronto Nican Chicago. Tenga su boleto hoy en nican.com raya diagonal Illinois de nuevo nsan.com raya diagonal Illinois